Hi, and welcome to House Call, our podcast designed to help you navigate the New York City real estate market. I'm Andrew Fishkind, as always, here with my co-hosts and partners, Carl Eckroth and Emily Margola. Hello. Hey, everyone. Hello again. It's good to be back. We're very pleased today to have Assemblyman Alex Boris here from New York City, Manhattan specifically. Hey, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. I think you're the most seniorly titled representative in New York (laughs) City that we've had on so far. So far. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm going to start like I usually do, ask you to introduce yourself because I'm not sure that everybody is as familiar with you as we now are. Hi, everyone. I'm Assemblymember Alex Boris. I represent much of the east side of Manhattan in the State Assembly, specifically the 73rd District, which goes from 32nd to 93rd Street on the east side. For most of the district, 2nd to 3rd Avenue to 5th, although in the 50s, the entire east side, 5th Avenue to the river. Uh, I was just elected in November, so this is my first year serving in the State Assembly. Before running, I was in tech. I'm actually the first Democrat elected in New York at any level with a degree in computer science. Wow. I would not have guessed that about New York, truthfully. For those who don't know what an assemblyman is, will you just tell us what that is? Absolutely. If you think in the federal level, you have Congress members and senators, and then the president. In New York State, we have a governor, we have an assembly, and we have a state senate. I'm part of the legislature in New York State for any of the issues that the state deals with, which is more than most people think. It's every issue that is in foreign policy. I have a vote in the legislature. I help to write bills. Of course, a lot of the work of being an assembly member is direct constituent service and helping people in my community navigate government agencies, get what they need. I'd love to start with the topic of converting commercial buildings to residential real estate. I know that's an ongoing topic in the city. The mayor recently released a plan to help accelerate that process as well here. I'm hopeful and optimistic about the mayor's proposal. I think it is gaining steam. Obviously, that'll be decided by the city council and ongoing conversations there. I tried to get a version of that through the state assembly this past year. It's a really important topic, and it's one that's particularly important within my district. The southern part of my district is very commercial. There are more Fortune 500 companies headquartered in just my district than there are in 37 states. Wow. I know what an important tax base from property taxes the commercial real estate is and also how much that just drives the economics of the city, people coming into the office and then going to lunch or using the surrounding businesses and all of that. It's a tough balance to get right. When you look at these conversions, it's not a panacea. The estimate is with minimal changes, about 3%, the economics would make sense. The challenge has been the law has limited even that 3% to a much smaller number. You'd have to have been built before 1961. You have to be in certain areas. And so the mayor's proposal says, let's get the law out of the way of uh, stopping conversions. If it economically makes sense for that building to convert, we have a lot of commercial real estate in New York City generally. We have not enough housing. Why don't we let the ones for whom it makes sense actually convert and house people? Some of the proposals have have contemplated SROs where they don't have to have quite the same square footage or a number of windows and they don't have to worry about kitchens and bathrooms because a lot of that would be external to the apartment and that would make a lot of sense as well. Is that all in the mix of conversation? That's on the table. There's places where the city can just take action. There's places where it's the multiple dwelling law and Albany will have to get involved. Mm-hmm. And SROs were largely banned decades ago when we thought that would be Hey, people should have better apartments, mm-hmm. and they should. That's great, but they should also have 
opportunities across the economic spectrum to live wherever they want and to live near where they work. And so SROs can be part of that solution as well. So it'll definitely be a piece that we're looking at. Especially with the immigration issue going on right now, if they can redefine some of that space, it may not be the most luxurious, but to give people clean, safe places to sleep would be a step in the right direction anyway. Absolutely. When you think about how large the shelter system is in New York City, there's many different steps beyond that we could take and have offerings for. Why would someone not support this? Could you talk a little bit about what the opposition might be and then also why it is that you're in support of it? A lot of the opposition is just driven by fear. New York is a wonderful place where people will fight against a new building going up and then 30 years later fight to preserve that same building. (laughs) I may be in that list. And there's real cost when you look at construction, when you look at changes. All of that is real. We Um, don't want to lose our city. We don't want to lose what we have grown to love. Absolutely. They tore down the original Penn Station and (laughs) and that's an unforgivable sin in my mind. It is (laughs) unforgivable. The opposition can be fear fear in how that affects the neighborhood or maybe resources. All of the conversations you get anytime a new development might be going up. Are there any concerns about gentrification or only people who can afford to buy like a full floor would be interested in this real estate because there's only so many windows, so it has to be a lot. You get all of those fears. And the reality is when you bring new apartments online, especially where there weren't apartments before, that's going to take a demand off the market. Providing more supply, that's going to lead to less gentrification than a process of saying, nope, the number of apartments is flat as it is. Right. Perhaps the least change you could make would be, well, this building is here, but there's no apartments in it. Magically, let's right. have apartments. Without getting into the politics of the immigration issue, the idea of conversion of commercial to residential, is that a largely a New York City topic or is it really a New York State topic as well? It will have the most impact in New York mm-hmm. City and there's laws that make it difficult in New York City, but there are pieces that are restricted at the state level, right. and so it becomes a conversation about both. But it's the density of New York City that makes it'll it'll have the most impact here in terms of adding housing. The scale right. of the impact yeah. is much bigger yeah. in the city than the rest that of the state. Sense. And jumping off what you were saying, we've got about 3% of all the buildings, in theory, that can be converted. Phase number one is amend the constitution so that these folks can work with the city agencies, the state agencies, and get that done. The natural next question is what happens to the remaining 97%? As much as we like to think that the pandemic is coming to an end and a return to an office is right in front of us, uh, the employees are pushing back on that. We know, for example, only 50, 55% of all offices are filled at any given time of the week. What is that next step? Let's focus on this 3%, but we have this whole other pool to attack. And And again, you can't just flip a switch and a building goes from commercial to residential. I'll give you three steps. The first is we need to be ensuring that every opportunity to return to work is presented there. Employees are going to make their own decisions, but are we making sure that the subway is running on time and that they feel safe on the subway and that they like going into work? Let's make sure that there's nothing else that we're doing that is dissuading people from going to the office in order to help to support uh, that market more. The second thing is allow conversions not just to housing, but to other uses. For example, biosciences, life sciences. A lot of research can use commercial buildings. You don't need to do much renovation physically. But the law is a little vague on whether that is an industrial usage and needs different zoning. Largely, we've said, yeah, that's fine. But it'd be good to just clarify and make sure, yeah, absolutely, you can use it for these other purposes that might want it. And then the third is, can we provide incentives that 
expand that 3%. So that 3% is just looking at the economics as is, but can we provide a tax subsidy to do that conversion if you have certain of the apartments listed as affordable, and then suddenly you can expand the number of offices that can be converted. And then I said three, but I'll give you a fourth. The fourth is just let's incentivize businesses to come to New York and stay in New York. If office space prices are coming down a little bit, maybe there are some vacancies. Most of our tax incentives have been out of the core into the other four boroughs, and that's great. We shouldn't take away those. But Now we're going to need help in the core as well, changing our policies to encourage people to actually come into Manhattan and use that office space uh, will be key. You've got these empty office buildings right now, which means that all the surrounding delis and restaurants are suffering. And if you turn those into places where people live, then they support those local businesses. I remember what financial district was like pre 9-11. And I still don't think it has evolved enough as a residential neighborhood. I do remember when when the delis used to close at three because that was it. Then Wall Street got out at four and it was a ghost town. But and people I, wrote the obituary for mm-hmm. the financial yep. district. They said that. it's never coming back. What are we going to do with mm-hmm. this space? And instead, we've seen a very remarkable turnaround. That was that was a city and state joint project to, to get that done. And when Bloomberg was mayor, he rezoned the whole west side so that I, my last apartment was on 23rd between 10th and 11th, which I remember when there were four gas stations on that corner. <laughs> There's precedent set for all of this already. This is not new construction. The buildings in the financial district were more suited for conversion than a lot of these older buildings in Midtown. I've heard this too, that they were built in an earlier era that didn't have as large a floor plate yep. and yep. so had more windows built in. And so there was a more natural conversion into apartments mm-hmm. versus the modern ones with a massive floor plate. That's something I had not considered really until you were talking about it, that it really is a Manhattan-centric issue. Does that make it tougher in the state, convincing the upstaters, right, Putnam County North? I can see somebody from Binghamton saying, it's New York City, they're you know so far away, it doesn't really impact me. And we tend to work together, especially when you have one group that's very interested and the other group not affected. It's different when one part of the state might be hurt by something, but Everyone will benefit if Manhattan can do these conversions and if we can grow the property tax base and uh, secure that, that will help everyone. No one's thumbing their nose at Manhattan just to do it. You'll get more opposition. Openly. (laughs) (laughs) Not to my face. How many representatives are there from New York City? There's 150 members of the assembly and 65 from New York City. Uh, It's more than a third. And it's in line roughly with population because we each represent the same number of people. I have colleagues upstate that represent five counties. Right. And I represent a square mile. What would you want the layperson to know about what you do and, and how we can get more involved in our city and community? Most of those of us who are listening are New Yorkers. We're here. We're trading here. We're raising our families here. How can we get involved? I love that question because for so many people... Albany might as well be on Mars. Right. They don't think about what's happening there, let alone D.C. or right. City well, Hall. We get all involved in national politics, but really where you can make the most change is locally. Absolutely. And we live in Manhattan. That's a great question. I would say there's many ways to plug in, especially in New York City. You have your local community boards that are open to anyone. And so you can just look up and go and they'll deal with a lot of neighborhood issues and zoning changes, et cetera. You'll also have these political clubs, for lack of a better word, that are organized by assembly district. And so regardless of your political leanings, Republican, Democrat, you can go check out your local club and you'll meet a lot of volunteers that 
uh, are themselves quite involved in local politics. Uh, and then, of course, you have your community education councils. You have a lot of these bodies that are made to uh, draw feedback in. But the other bit I'd say is pick up the phone and call uh, an elected office or email us. My office gets about 500 emails a day. The ones that are from constituents, we get back to all of them. Reach out. And the last bit I'd say is that my best legislative ideas have all come from constituents just saying, hey, this thing's weird. You don't need to have the solution. If you're just like, this thing seems broken, right. maybe half the time your representative will be able to say, I know, but here's why it's broken and here's what we're doing, et cetera. And maybe the other half will be like, I've never heard that before. Let me see what can be done. And a lot of my best bills have been just that. People just saying, this is a weird thing that needs to get fixed. And you dig into it until you have an answer. And that answer is either an explanation or a bill that will fix it. I guess my next question is, are there ways that we can investigate what you all are doing, what bills are on the table? And then is there like a website or somewhere we can go to, to follow the rabbit hole of our own particular interests? Yeah, that's a great question. Every legislative body has its own website that'll list all of the members and then what their legislation is. For me, you can go on nyassembly.gov and then you can go to the member page, Alex Boris, you can look up all of the bills that I sponsor cool. and it'll have a summary of them and you can read the actual bills if you'd like. The good news is the New York legislature is actually quite productive in terms of producing ideas and bills and all that. The bad news is the New York legislature is quite productive in producing <laughs> bills. And in a two-year cycle, there'll be maybe 30,000 bills proposed. So on the one hand, we're being active and proposing. On the other hand, no, no one can keep track of 30,000 mm -hmm. bills. On average, yeah. though, how many of those get up to vote? You're probably looking in 500 to 1,000 oh. per year. Now, many of those will be specific to one locality. If a town is raising itself, tax above the state thing that actually needs state approval and it's it's not a we'll just do all of those sort right. of as a run through so i don't know maybe you're looking at a hundred meaningful ones but all of that is to say you can find specific bills uh, on there you can find ideas and often your legislator won't have heard about it because it'll be one of thirty thousand, unless it's one of the big controversial ones that you're tracking but that also gives a lot of opportunity to lift great ideas up. I've had people say, hey, we should do A, B, and C. And I say, that's great. And then I search and I'm like, oh, actually, there's a bill to do A, B, and C. And it's right. stuck in this committee. And let right. me go talk to that chair that I also support this. And how can we move it forward? The assembly page also speaks to every assembly person's, the committee that they're on. Correct. Or various committees. Yeah. You can go on that page, see exactly what committees Alex is on or another representative, and find that one that kind of speaks to you mm -hmm. in terms of, of what you're interested in. And the agenda really, of each of the committees, yeah. and absolutely. And that is a perfect segue back to, I think, what Emily originally asked, which is, so what bills have you sponsored? What projects are you working on that you think are important to average New York City residents, specifically in your district? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was really happy. This was my first session. I ended up passing um, six bills through the assembly, which is as much as any other freshman. The one I get the most positive feedback on is I raised the fine on telemarketers. That went over very popularly. You still need to sign up for the do not call list and submit complaints there. But we've now empowered the New York Secretary of State to issue fines up to $20,000 per call. Mm. They usually get negotiated to something lower, but put some real teeth behind that to try to reduce the amount of telemarketing that we're all getting. I also expanded the number of judges that we have in New York State, which leads me into the thing that I am working on this year that I want everyone to be aware of is trials in New York just take far too long. And you can look at this on any side of the issue. On yep. the one hand, Rikers were 
90% of the people are being held pre-trial. They haven't been convicted yet. Rikers has the longest average length of stay of any jail in the country. I can't say that we are the most delayed court system. That's tough to measure, but perhaps as a proxy, we have the jail with the longest wait time in it. On the flip side, you have a lot of people saying, oh, so-and-so committed a crime while they were out on bail awaiting trial, the keywords being awaiting trial. And there was a big backlog during the pandemic that we're still working down, but that backlog was growing ahead of time. I was glad to pass that bill this year, but it didn't add any Supreme Court judges, which is the court that's relevant for this conversation in New York State. It didn't add any judges in Manhattan. There is a limit on the number of judges in the New York State Constitution that has been there since 1925. And it has long outlived whatever usefulness it had. And because of it, for decades, we haven't been able to add judges in Manhattan and speed up our trials. Because it's a change to the Constitution, it first needs to pass the legislature. Then there needs to be an election. Then it needs to pass the legislature again, and then it goes out for a ballot initiative. Whose so. idea was that? <laughs> well, you don't want it to be too easy to I'm amend sure, the Constitution, sure. but, but and yeah. And since it's very much a quality of life issue, right? I don't think anybody in this room would agree that it's not. What is, what can we do? Yeah. Uh, is it as simple as reaching out to our representative in it our has, district and saying, this means a lot to us? Yes. So it, it's already passed the Senate. So whoever your senator is, you can go thank them for that. We are working on it in the assembly. Every Manhattan rep is, is co-sponsoring it. So call and thank them. But then there's another 18 or so co-sponsors outside of Manhattan as well. There's a good chance that your rep is supporting it. But if not, call their office and say, hey, we'd love you to support the No Cap app because we, we really need to get it passed this year. And I'd say... It's a bipartisan effort. There are Republican co-sponsors. It's also not just Manhattan that's at the limit. It's the Bronx and Staten Island. And so to get judges in any of those boroughs going forward, we're going to need to pass this I, amendment. I just, it seems somewhat archaic to have a cap. I mean, and just because you add numbers, if you don't need new judges in Queens, then don't get new judges in Queens. And the New York City Bar Association just came out with a report that said exactly that. It said we should be able to put judges where they're needed. There shouldn't be an artificial cap. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Anything else that you're working on that you like to talk about? You give an elected official the floor, they'll just keep talking. It's a dangerous dangerous thing to do. You are definitely Um, one of the more interesting people we've had here. (laughs) Are you involved with congestion pricing? Did you you give some suggestions? I did, I did, did. yeah. I I wasn't in the legislature when it was passed. That was in 2019, and I think it was supposed to be implemented in 2020 originally, and it's been delayed. Yeah, also the federal government at the time, and, and so on and so forth. But so yeah, so it'll be coming in 2024, scheduled for May now. Now, the exact exclusions and inclusions and prices are were passed to this board called the TMRB, the Transit Mobility Review Board. They've had now three or four meetings. They will continue to meet and narrow down on what the recommendations are. I put out a letter with a number of Manhattan electeds on specific suggestions, making sure that it tries to meet its goals while minimizing the costs on the people who end up most affected, which are those that live in Manhattan that cross the barrier most frequently. But that is one where, yeah, it was passed in 2019 and now is in the separate body. And I'm using my voice for things that I think should be changed about it, but everyone can take that same path. And that's where we're at with congestion pricing. It's just trying to figure out where the exemptions might be, where the discounts might be. Exactly. It's tough when it falls to the workers who are like commuting in and out of the city every day. Absolutely. And and it's also tough when it hits the residents within the zone. So when congestion pricing was originally proposed by Mayor Bloomberg, it only applied 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday to Friday. It was really, if you're going to commute into 
the city, please take mass transit. That's what the entire mass transit system yeah. is designed to do. It's I'm not a huge mass transit advocate. There you go. I hate cars, but I don't want the workers to get it. Yeah, and it's not necessarily designed for taking your kid to Little League on the weekend or going to your house of worship, right? That's not where the subway goes. And in fact, we reduce transit on the weekends. And so that's tough. If you're a resident, you say, every time I can take the subway, I do. But now I'm going to be paying this fee to go to a Little League game. We just have to think about how that balances. It's tough as a real estate-centric borough that the subways slow down on Saturdays and Sundays because that's when everyone's out looking at apartments too. Yeah. And the hope is that if you put more funding into mass transit, right, we can improve that and speed it along as well. Absolutely. Right by me in Midtown and 8th Avenue, there are now more pedestrian lanes and a bigger bike lane and another parking lane. And there's two lanes of traffic, which when getting from 40th Street to 44th Street can take you 15 minutes while the traffic all converges. A lot of that is delivery trucks sitting on the street. When Bloomberg was mayor, there was a conversation about structuring it so that they were incented to do deliveries overnight. And is that still something that people are looking at that you're aware of? Absolutely. So there will be discounts uh, for driving at night and weekends. The exact amount is up to, to debate. And also the fee increases based on the size of the truck, specifically the number of axles. Coming up 8th Avenue, it's already congested because of Port Authority and the traffic to the tunnel. And now you've subtracted two lanes of traffic and the delivery trucks are all still sitting there or they're parked in the bike lanes. I have mixed feelings about the idea, but the idea isn't even getting executed because the traffic isn't allowing it to get executed. Well, and I think that's the key distinction. If you look at the challenge we have with the environment and with congestion, saying we should charge cars a little bit more and spend that on mass transit is a pretty unimpeachable idea. Congestion right now means you can't get from one side to the other and you sit idling for just as long. And so at a high level, of course, that makes sense. The details really matter in how we execute it. And so many of the details are still up in the air that People get quite frustrated. Everyone imagines the worst case scenario for them. Mm -hmm. In most cases, it won't be that worst case scenario, but we don't really know the details. And so it's important for people to keep speaking up. Wow. That's where it gets mind boggling for me because it's you'll think you have an opinion about something and then you do research on it and you realize that your opinion is opposite to what your own interests are. You said there's another topic that's also near and dear to you, which is the changing landscape of the employment base of the city? That's a piece of it. But just thinking about how we use and regulate artificial intelligence. As I mentioned in the intro, first Democrat elected in New York at any level with a degree in computer science. It was actually a master's degree specializing in machine learning. And I've worked at AI startups before. And the potential of this technology to cure diseases, to bring economic gains is massive. And also the disruption to people's livelihoods and the risks when you think about it being used adversarially or even just accidentally are quite large. There's a lot that we need to focus on. One bit which I've introduced is a bill to ensure that if you're using AI as part of a political campaign, you have to disclose that. So that if you make an altered image or an altered video, or even you're just pushing out a lot of text that is coming from a computer, I'm not saying you can't, I'm not saying there's a fine, but I am saying that voters should know that is synthetic and not representing the real world. We've seen similar bills pass in, I think, four or five other states now. There's one proposed at the federal level, but that would just apply to federal runs to Congress and Senate and and president. And so my bill would apply it to state and city uh, as well. And And that's your bill? 
Yep. Great. As the podcast grows, I feel like we've been expanding discussions from real estate specific things to how things affect life in the city. And obviously there's a real estate bent to it. It's what we do for a living. So we'd be happy to have you back anytime you'd like. I'd love to be back. Awesome. Thank you again. 